Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando. I just enjoyed a salted caramel milkshake, so I've got a bit of a sugar buzz going on. Meanwhile, my co-host... McGill. I ate some fresh baked bread that I made. Hey, way to bake bread. You're a real bread winner. I have a bread buzz. You're a real breadwinner for your household. Um, hey And uh, I had a, a burger from Five Guys. It was a Five Guys burger and shake situation. Um, it is the 25th of September. Uh, and for me, it's it's session 31, but it's a it's a new it's a new paradigm. It's a very shift. special episode. Yeah, I feel like we've been having a lot of those lately. Um, I guess so. And it's interesting. You said this is a session one for you, but I mean, last time we didn't really get into establishing the party or anything. So like, I guess this will be session zero and one for that. Well, Tom, there's actually a reason for that, but I'll, I'll get into it further when we actually talk about my new campaign. I got some ideas. What what might be going on here, but yeah. On my end, um, my characters just got out of a kind of an exposition buffet at the uh, while they were out in the far realms after escaping the clutches of the Nightside Eclipse, and so uh, now we return to sort of business as usual with the Empok, but we're uh, moving on to another act, and uh, this is the after this act. There's only two more in this campaign, and then we'll be on to the next one. That's exciting. It's pretty exciting, I gotta say. So who's kicking this off? Well, I don't know. Uh, I'm really excited to hear about yours, but maybe we should pick up with mine because we've at least got something to go on so far. Sure, yeah, let's do that. All right, so as I mentioned, last episode, the characters, they had been captured by the Nightside Eclipse, They managed to escape through a rift that led them out into the Far Realms where they were, you know, it's pretty dicey if you end up in the Far Realms. It's like, well, how did they even survive? It's like, well, there was an entity there that happened to be a sort of indirect ally to them and explain that to them. And that was sort of the exposition is that we've learned that the Nightside Eclipse in their uh, multidimensional expansion and invasions they are sort of running their show from a kind of home base that is uh, kind of suspended in the Far Realms outside of time and space, allowing them to launch invasions of uh, various different planes, all from basically uh, the Void or something like it. So with all of that established, the uh, characters were sent back to uh, the Empok teleporter room by this entity, which happened to be an ally of the Empok. And so it was simple enough to set that up. Basically, he sent them on their way back to the base, um, but they were much the wiser now as to the bigger picture of what the Nightside Eclipse was up to and what the Empok was up against as a result. And so following this, this is actually something I think that I have a tendency. I I think 
when you have characters drop into like other dimensions, particularly the far realms, and you have this concept of like going outside of time and space, um, there's always the question of like, how does that correspond with like material plane time? Like, does it do, I typically, I think the two extremes are either it's like Narnia where you leave and you're gone for ages and then you come back and you've only been gone for a little bit. Or it's the other way around where you're gone for a little bit and you come back and it's been a long time. Uh, you know, sometimes you get the, you know, time matches up. But more often when it's the Far Realms, you want to shake things up in a very extreme it's Narnia way. or Interstellar. I guess. And I guess... I don't like to make this comparison, but I went the interstellar way. I don't, I think I'm pretty sure I did this before interstellar, man. I hope so. I don't know about that. I don't like that movie. Um, I, I just like the concept. No, I've been doing this for a long time is I like the concept of the reverse where you're gone for a little bit and then you come back and like society has changed in some way. Like back when I used to play changeling, that was sort of my favorite pitch for a changeling campaign is like you know there's this idea in the game of changeling is like you were a mortal and then you got kidnapped by an arc fae and you were in the fairy realms and then you came back and my favorite thing was to basically have them get captured in like modern times and then when they come back it's like cyberpunk times and uh you know just sort of up the ante that way and get to play around with the setting that way but um, in this case, I was just keeping that that preference, or I think I was. I, I know that at the very least, I had like some amount of time pass while they were gone, probably which seemed larger, longer than the amount of time they had been gone. Um, and the main reference point I have for this is coming back the next act the big thing, the the big uh, point tying together the next act is that it takes place in Goblin Town, the Goblin capital in uh, Southern Drail, which you can see in the comparingcampaign.wordpress.com first entry on that map of Drail. It's over on the left-hand side on the uh, west coast in the uh, just below the channel on the southern side. And... Um, as I was saying, as a reference point, the thing is that last, the previous act, I had talked about how the factories that they were going through and sabotaging and shutting down had been in the process of creating a biological weapon known as Virus 33. And when they deployed to Goblin Town, one of the things was that um, there were storms of this Virus 33, basically. There were like dark green clouds hanging over Goblin Town that were spreading this sort of like toxic plague. And it wasn't like, it was, it was light enough that like people could still go inside and stuff, but like you couldn't risk prolonged exposure. And so it was something where like over a period of time, it was going to kill more and more goblins. And the reason it wasn't totally, um, you know, totally lethal is because the players had managed to shut down some of the generators for the production uh, in the previous act. So I think in having that 
single session where we sort of jumped out in the far realms and then coming back and act later and having this biological weapon fully deployed i think there was definitely some measure where i was saying like yeah this is this is taking place after a larger gap of time than you feel you've been gone for um so wait, did you let the players know that? Yes, because the Empok would have known as soon as they came through the portal, like, oh, you've been missing in action for this many days. Okay, got it. But but not like they didn't know that until they returned. Correct. Got it. Yeah, and th- and that's something that's actually good to note is that like this is their first time experiencing like a weird uh far realms detour like that whereas like i think uh certainly in the future there's things like where they go behind enemy lines to that that nightside eclipse base out in the far realms and with that there's always sort of a consideration of like okay there's going to be some like time distortion here um and so when they sign on to the operation they have to be aware that like they might be gone for an abnormal amount of time or not who knows neat now did that have i mean i'm sure you're you're going to mention it but did that have any like repercussions on the characters individual lives like did they have families that they had left behind because as i recall this whole campaign started with them just sort of being scooped out of their lives and thrust into into m into the mpoc yeah so because of that setup the answer is not really. Um, I guess the only person who had a lot uh, or, or like a very set um, background story that was sort of still going in their sub in their character subplot was Mia Lee, who was from this other plane and had since like gotten vengeance against the person who kidnapped her and sold her to the Empok. And, um, like, made deals with Mephisto to sort of give her people supremacy in their own plane. And the advantage of that is I can sort of treat it on its own. Uh, I, I can treat that, like, on a case-by-case basis because then that's, like, two planes of separation. Like, I can sort of fudge the rules even more there because it's, like, who knows what the Far Realm's distortion is, like, relative to her original home plane. Um, but yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned because nowadays my characters all have pretty major like uh, NPC bonds and whatnot in the campaign. And so when they leave, it is like a big deal. Whereas in this case, this was probably the only time that I did this and the party was like largely not tied down to anything in Drail. So it didn't, it didn't affect them too much. Um, it is worth saying that, like, uh, the construction of the Crimson Tower was, like, finalized uh, in the time that they were gone. Like, um, any, like, it had always been sort of, like, under construction up until this point. Um, I guess that's kind of a handy function, as you can, like, you can do the uh, the Baldur's Gate, you rest for six months and have everything progress. <laughs> yeah, I, basically. And, and it's the same thing. Like, I think the real indicator for me was just like, oh, I don't think I would have normally done the virus 33 storms happening literally the 
like the immediately the act after the act where I had established they were in production, but having this sort of time jump, uh, like sort of explains that I did. Um, Honestly, I always kind of wondered if uh, it was by design, like the, the MPOC recruit people that don't actually have, you know, many or any ties within whatever, you know, the material plane, I guess the normal plane, I think that may have been part of the design with the initial group, but um, yeah, I think that going into the next campaign, I mean, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but two out of the three characters in the next campaign have sort of, like they get their position through sort of pre-existing character ties that make the MPOC like have a reason to select them, basically. So... I don't know. It may be that the like there's no standard for that set yet, um, but there eventually becomes one. Whereas, like, y- like you say, as it is, the party is basically like does not have a lot of connections, um, and it just kind of works out that way. Um, so going to Goblin Town, uh, I set up this act. Like I, I talk each act about sort of like the different things I was experimenting with. And this was another one where I was experimenting with like a different kind of structure for the act. And so the way I did this was, first of all, to explain Goblin Town is kind of like, um, it's almost, it's almost like a post-industrial kind of city. Like, like it's, it's almost like, uh, like a 1900s kind of New York or something like Imagine like a lot of industry, a lot of like, like it's the kind of place where you find skyscrapers and stuff. And it's just like full of goblins, basically. Um, It's not necessarily technologically advanced so much as it is just like a lot. It's it's that sort of like, um, I don't know. I'm thinking of like Dickensian, like very clustered city kind of situation. All right, like like old timey England with the buildings that kind of hunch in over the streets. Yeah, um, basically, so like, uh, just just sort of like, I mean, again, this is also a, a setting where we've established that like there are because of the MPOC like firearms and things, and they're like basically World War Two era. But so basically, with with Goblin Town, there's sort of like, I don't know, there's. There's basic vehicles, but they're not very advanced or reliable. Uh, you know, there's big buildings. There's things are very like clustered and cluttered. There's it's a big sprawling city with a very high population. Um, and yeah, it's very much a change of pace from a traditional kind of fantasy setting. It's much more in line with your kind of like steampunk settings and whatnot. Um, and so when they get to Goblin Town, basically they are deployed um, through the teleporters to a new base that has been set up in Goblin Town, which is like this manor house. And uh, already there at the manor house when they arrive are two uh, Goblin MPOC agents, one of which is higher ranking named Al Samasath, who I think I've mentioned before. Um, and the other is Foob, who in the sort of spin-off uh 
game that I ran with the two detectives way back when we like started this podcast, there was um, one of the things that happened was Foob was a young goblin that wanted to join the Empok and the players made it happen. And so this is following up on this on that way later is that now Foob is an Empok agent just like he wanted to be. And I basically played it as like Foob and Al Samasath are both already in place in the city. They both have their own expertises and sort of it's like each operation or, or at least at the start of the act, the players got to choose like which of the two they wanted to have like sort of directing their operations while the other one be, would be sort of like free to sort of handle uh, like basically like the, the upper like administration angle, like, you know, doing the scouting for the next jobs and whatnot. Um, and so that was one thing that I was playing with was this idea that like this time they would have a choice of handlers and there would be def different benefits depending on who they chose. Um, and so they were brought into this, uh, setup for operation fork tongue. Um, and I also, uh, included some new stuff in the armory. I included, uh, a double barrel shotgun called the Hephaestus shotgun. And also I added smoke grenades. Um, it's also worth mentioning that I also gave the players access to plus one ammunition. And this is important in my games because in order to balance firearms, basically in the larger context of Dungeons and Dragons for my game, mechanically, um, my general rule is that you add your dexterity bonus to your uh, your attack roll, but not your damage roll. You don't add your dexterity bonus to damage the way you would with a bow. Um, what you I thought with a bow, if it's a compound bow, you add your strength bonus to the damage. I think, yeah, if it's a compound bow, maybe. Um, but uh, yeah, r regardless, like generally i sort of firearms disregard that rule basically where you add damage based on an attribute instead you can get ammunition that is plus one plus two or plus three and that will uh affect the damage and so it basically it just makes it so that like bows still rely on character ability more whereas firearms are like you're sort of limited by how good the quality of the firearm is or the ammunition. I think that's a perfectly reasonable compromise. Some people don't really like it, um, but... Uh, really? That's surprising to me. Like, yeah. why would you get any bonus from, like, strength or dex when you're using a gun? It makes sense with a bow, because the stronger you are, the further back you can draw the bow. But with a gun, it's just point and shoot. I mean, I, again, it's just something that I do, like, if I wanted to have, like, kind of everyone using guns, I wouldn't necessarily do this. But as it is, I like having the sort of mix-up, the sort of, like, some people are just better with the, like, fantasy weapon style, whereas, like, some people really actually benefit from the guns. and keeps things varied in combat. Um, and so the big setup going into this 
there's basically two things going into Goblin Town, one of which is the thing I've already established where the, the Nightside Eclipse has deployed this biological weapon in Goblin Town, uh, Virus 33. The other thing is that um, the Goblin Princess Remy has been kidnapped. And these are sort of like the two major things that the MPOC has to deal with here in Goblin Town for this act. Um, basically they like basically the two objectives are one and the same because the solution is to just like you know find the nightside eclipse hideouts crack down on them and like you know eventually uh save princess remy uh and also shut down the uh virus 33 uh whatever's creating it basically or whatever's you know um distributing it through the air and uh so it's interesting to know i actually have noted here like the characters chose uh to go with foob rather than alsamasath um basically the bonus for going with alsamasath was that alsamasath had a magic weapon that he could offer one of the characters that they could use. Um, but Foob actually was more of like the word on the street guy. He'd been doing sort of like the reconnaissance out in the city and he was able to like provide them Intel without making like, uh, without really having to make skill checks. And so they went with Foob and let Al Samasath keep his weapon so that he could like sort of operate on his own. And he was also the more experienced like MPOC agent out of the two. So it seemed kind of like, it seemed appropriate to have the higher up who had the magic weapon, like handle the solo work while Foob handle, like literally was the handler for Mpok's finest. And, um, it's also, I also, uh, I mentioned the Hephaestus shotgun earlier. Uh, I did want to say that I also gave the option that, for that one, they could get it either sawed off or not. And if it's sawed off, it only has an effective, it only has an effective range of 10 feet with a long range of 30 feet, but it does more damage. So it's like you can trade range for like a little bonus to damage, basically. Were you adapting these guns from any other like source book or were you just building them all from the ground up for your campaign? Um, so the dungeon master's guide has rules for firearms. They're very basic. They're basically like, here is stats for a revolver. Here is stats for a pistol. Here is stats for a submachine gun. Here is stats for a shotgun. And I took those and did some variations on them. So for example, I had... The thing is that there's not that many stats in their stat lines to like add variations to without sort of getting into a little more complicated special rules. And so all you can really adjust in the main stat line is like the damage, the like clip capacity, like like how many rounds before you have to reload, whether or not it has auto fire, range, things like that. And so I found the main one that the main adjustment I would make for different guns is like basically early on the guns that the characters have access to have like the lowest 
um, ammo capacity before they have to reload. And as things improve, like, so for example, there's the Hephaestus shotgun, which is a two shot shotgun. It's a double barrel and they get two shots before they have to reload. And then the step up from that is a, fa- a Hephaestus military, which gets six shots before it has to reload and is like a combat shotgun. And so like, I I didn't go super in depth with them, but I did take the stat lines that existed and just added a little bit more variance between them. Okay. Um, so what then proceeded was basically this first session was actually quite, um, like after setting up everything that I've set up thus far, uh, goblin princess is kidnapped. Also, there was some, like, it's funny because depending who I told about that, some people had a reaction of like, oh, that really subverts expectations. And I'm like, really? The princess has been kidnapped? They're like, no, but it's a goblin princess. Nobody sees that coming. I'm like, oh, yeah. But then other people think it's like, oh, it's so cliche, the princess being kidnapped. I don't know. I thought it was like... Personally, I think it's a double cliche. It's a cliche because the princess is kidnapped, and it's a cliche because it's Tom Lando and a goblin again. Yeah, that makes sense. But I mean, this was actually my first time doing an operation in Goblin Town, which this late in the campaign is actually a fair amount of restraint, I think you'd give me. Um, Credit where credit's due. Yeah. But, uh, and yeah, it's worth noting, like, there is a whole goblin royal family which uh maybe i should be getting into actually so there's king max the third and queen ava i'm gonna get my old goblin royal family list here to make sure i'm getting this right i'm gonna note these down and the next time i play crusader kings three oh man i will create your goblin family line i have definitely done that myself let me tell you and just uh, find these guys. Nope. Where did I put my NPCs? Oh, here we go. Where are my NPCs at? Yeah, dude, where's my NPCs? Um. Right, so we got King Max the Third, Queen Ava. Their eldest son is Prince Ed with one D. Uh, there's Princess Asa. There is Princess Remy, who is kidnapped. And their youngest son is Prince Udo. Uh, Prince Ed is married to Princess Nix Third. Uh, and then Ed's son is named Prince Ed with two Ds. And uh, that's all we have thus far in the story. Okay, hang on. Is there also a Prince Eddie? Uh, not yet. Because you got Ed, Ed. You did catch that. <laughs> um, but no, so that's just to establish that, like, so the second youngest in the family, in the immediate royal family, Princess Remy, has been kidnapped. And so it's it's like... Basically, the issue is that Goblin Town has been totally destabilized because while there is this biological gas attack um, making it unsafe for goblins to go outside and breathe for long periods of time, uh, the royal family is in chaos because one of their daughters has been kidnapped, and so they're not really able to give a measured response because they're so desperate to get their own back. 
And who knows what foul uh, purposes the Nightside Eclipse have in mind to use their uh, ransom for. But, um, as I mentioned, the setup for the act was act was generally going to be we need to track down the Nightside Eclipse's hideouts in the city where they're operating from and, you know, give them what's for. But that is not what needed to happen in this, uh, like, in this first session because what happened here was uh, they realized that Foob in his last intel run had been tailed back to the Empok, uh, basically this hideout at this manor they have. And uh, so they were directly attacked by Night Cyclops cultists uh, who smashed in the window. And then they ran out and got into like this big brawl in the street. And then this actually turned into sort of like one of like those scrolling arcade beat em ups where they were just like fighting at Nightside Eclipse down the street and like just throwing spells and uh, smashing people. And like there's goblins like running for cover and stuff. And some of them have gas masks on and stuff. And uh, they're running into like they ran into a goblin fruit stand that was run by my old goblin character Lovecraft through I Chan. Uh, who's a goblin magical girl, but she has a fruit stand too. She just sells goblin fruit. Um, and yeah, uh, they fought the Nightside Eclipse off. At the end, there was sort of like a boss fight where the Nightside Eclipse had these berserkers um, that uh, ended up like fleeing on like a goblin streetcar, basically. Uh, but yeah, that's how things ended off is like the nightside eclipse sort of came for them. They went in, out in the streets and had this big brawling battle and then, uh, managed to fight off the nightside eclipse who took off in a, in a goblin streetcar. I just like the concept of a goblin streetcar. There was also a goblin <laughs> candy shop, got its window smashed. Uh, Yeah. It was pretty good times. Neat. It it was fun to just like you know because as you mentioned I love I love my goblin stuff and so like I was long overdue to just have like a crazy like welcome to Goblin Town and it's like the sort of it was a combination of like that arcade brawler uh, style that I mentioned along with like kind of kind of almost more like a like a detective comics. Uh, approach to the act where it's like all right we're gonna have you're gonna have a handler who provides you with intel and whoever you choose to be your direct handler the other one is going to be sort of like the agent who's out in the field like preparing your next operation and uh we're basically gonna have to like track down the nightside eclipse in this dang old city to bring them to justice but then once you're out of the game lobby where your handler gives you the intel, you're straight into double dragon, but with goblins. Double goblin. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I was pretty happy with it. I mean, yeah, there even is like sort of a a double goblin, a double dragon element in the choice between Al Samasath and Foob. Like it's like picking which of the two guys. Yeah. And and the girl is kidnapped, and you got to fight your way there through a city. Honestly, it was actually like very influenced by arcade brawlers. <laughs> there's actually there's a specific nothing wrong with that. Man. There's a specific one that's sort of like um, oh man, I, I I wish I could remember what it's called. Well, 
my my section's basically done. So I'll I'll look up what this game was that kind of inspired me for this one. But in the meantime, you got a whole new campaign to talk about. That's right. And uh a lot of questions surrounding it already. So the reason that I didn't really talk about what the what the player characters were on our last uh, episode is in oh. part because I got I got uh, the game. Uh, it's sixty four. Oh, what is it? It's sixty fourth Street, a detective story. It's basically cool. like an old time. It, it, I guess it's supposed to be kind of like uh, like thirties or forties era or something. I guess that's like that's another part. Like I it's like a thirties or forties era, like Double Dragon, basically. But that's sort of why and it's a brawler. Yes, and that's effectively why I chose it. Is like because I wanted that sort of vibe for the Goblin Town city, uh, but um, you know I wanted that brawler style to it, and so uh, yeah, I think I found sort of the marriage of that in that game and took some inspiration from it. I've never heard of that game, but just your pitch is very interesting. So um, the reason I didn't talk about the player characters is uh, I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of like flipping around in the the actual timeline of when I ran campaigns because this campaign took place after the campaign called the Verse, the Firefly-based campaign that I ran that we decided we're going to hold off on and return to that later. So uh, this was a, a gaming group that had two holdovers from Minds of Metal and Wheels, uh, Steve, who played Isaac, and of course my wife, Caitlin, and then uh, two new players, uh, a husband and wife, friends of mine uh, named Cater and Cecily, uh, who I think you probably met at like one of my birthday parties at some point. Um, and so we had just played a pretty lengthy campaign in the verse, and we were feeling really good. The group dynamic with them was really great. Uh, it was really clear as well that everybody in that player group, the role-playing was the most important part. They weren't power gamers. They just really wanted to play their characters and like get deep into the characters' backstories and explore the worlds that I was creating. And uh, just, you know, focus... Yeah, focus very much on like the story side of it. I find and, that's uh, that's almost like the ideal for me is like when you're basically running like a drama series with your friends. Like Exactly. Um so after we had such a good time with the verse, uh, and it was we'd wrapped it up, had a nice conclusion, and it was time to do the next one, I started asking them sort of like what settings they're interested in, if they had any preferences as to what kind of game we played next. Do you want to do high fantasy or do you want to do more sci-fi? Things like that. Uh, I can't. I wish I still had the list because I wrote down a list of a few potential ideas that I'd had. And uh, I can't remember what the other options were, but one of the things that I was discussing with them in the session zero for this campaign was... I had always I had always wanted to run a campaign where the the players the player characters had lost their memories or they didn't know like they didn't have a prior relationship with each other and that and uncovering 
any connections between them was part of the fun of the game. And it's a really difficult kind of a campaign setup. I'm sure you've probably contemplated at some point. It feels like the kind of thing that every DM has probably thought about, but it's hard to pull off with the, the wrong gaming group because, you know, if you've got a power gamer in your group, they're not so much into the story side of things. So like having their character not remember who they are could create all sorts of problems. Like I know I've definitely attempted it years ago, like at the end of high school, and it just didn't work out because the play group wasn't right. They didn't have the right attitude and they didn't play in that kind of style. So I, but, I have uh, to ask is, is what you're setting up for that you began as like a classless RPG and you get, they sort of discovered their classes in part, okay, but because uh, that's what I thought you might be onto when I asked earlier, and you said there's a reason I haven't said what the players. Well, are. Uh, it, really, what I was doing was sort of boiling down D twenty modern to like what's exactly in the source book, which is uh, you can you create a character, your initial character, before you get like an advanced class or start specializing. Your initial character is just built off of stats. You're the strong hero, the tough hero, the smart hero, the fast hero, the dedicated hero, or the charismatic hero. And so what I instructed my players to do was build one of those base classes. Just like pick a stat that you want to focus on. And I allowed them to sort of collaborate so that we could have a balanced party and be like, okay, I'll play a smart hero. Uh, Caitlin played the smart hero. Cecily played a, a fast hero. Cater played a charismatic hero, and Steve played a dedicated hero. So we had a nice spread of classes. But beyond that, they weren't allowed to uh, know anything about each other's characters. And I allowed them to come up with a portion of their own backstory just to give their character context. But that backstory wouldn't necessarily factor in to the campaign in an obvious way. Um... So everybody built their character based on a stat. And then what I was doing was, uh, I'll talk a little bit now actually about sort of my inspirations. What the inspirations I wanted to draw upon for this. This is a verdant apocalypse, but the tone that I wanted to set is I wanted to strike a tone that was kind of like uh, normal people in a tough situation. Uh, you know, maybe The Last of Us is a good point uh, of reference there because it is sort of a verdant apocalypse but also uh the movie the mist stephen king's the mist um the walking dead in particular the comics because i think the show really screwed the pooch but uh i wanted it to be a thing where like these seemingly normal people are all thrown into this bizarre situation together they don't know if they can trust each other they don't know each other's backstories beyond what the uh, what they tell each other and there are even gaps in their own memories, uh, including how they all got to where they start out. And uh, so it was this interesting sort of juggling act. And as I said, like I was using the D20 modern system, but in particular the D20 post-apocalypse campaign setting. And another goal of mine with this was to, to really play with a lot of the rules of the D20 apocalypse campaign setting and make it so that even just doing fairly normal things in this apocalyptic world could be a bit of a challenge. 
And uh, I'll explain more of that as, as I sort of get into the adventure. Um, so the players created their characters and I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you their names and I'll give you some backstory uh, on them, but just know that initially they had no idea who each other were. They, they just didn't have any clue. And so they're all being thrust into the situation together and they got to make it work. Caitlin was playing, uh, a girl named Rosa, who's like a 12 year old nerdy girl. And she's got like a backpack full of books. Uh, Cater, his character, uh, was, he just called himself Critter, and he's kind of like a shabby guy, but he's a charismatic hero, so he's really charming. He's just, he's not, uh, he's not that well put together. Steve was he's playing a someone. silver-tongued drifter. Very much a silver-tongued drifter. And then Steve was playing someone called Doc, and uh, his character, sort of in the before times, was an EMT. But he's just sort of like he's built like a fridge, like he's this really big guy named Doc. And uh, then Cecily's character is a woman named Beulah, who uh, is a fast hero. And she was formerly a security guard. And I should say Critter, <laughs> even though he's a charismatic hero in the before times, uh, he was just a homeless guy. He really was a silver tongue drifter. OK. Um, and so these are these are the players and yeah, I just wanted to make like normal things that you wouldn't think about are challenging. And so a lot of this campaign, like adventure to adventure, there's going to be a lot of like detail oriented things where, you know, players will be like, I want to go into that building, but they got to scope out the building. They got to check for, you know, dangers. Is it safe to walk on the floor? Is the ceiling going to fall in? What are like the environmental hazards? Even things like what's the weather like? Uh, will factor into it. And as a result, it was a really cool kind of style of play because it was almost like it wasn't playing in real time, but it was almost like playing moment to moment sort of real time play like that because they'll go into a building and like they gotta take their time and do it, do it right. And it was neat. It's like survivalist RPG. It reminds me of the game um, Neo Scavenger on Steam. It's a very granular kind of roguelike uh post-apocalyptic survival game you've recommended that to me but i haven't played it yet i really should gotta make sure so, you have a shoe for each foot because if you wear two left foot shoes get blisters make you bad for your walk that is the, that's the kind of detail or like you know sort of like far cry 2 where you gotta make sure that you clean your weapon and keep it in good shape or it'll break on you and, you know, uh, really keep track of your ammunition because ammo is so scarce, that kind of thing. So the uh, and, of course, with all that in mind, I literally just started by thrusting them into this crazy situation. So it starts and they're in darkness. They're surrounded by darkness and it's thick and it's close and their bodies ache. And then like if they open their mouths, dry grit floods in. Uh, they have a hard time moving and then suddenly you hear like the scratching clawing noise and distant voices and then rocks are pulled off of them and they're buried in a pile of debris and uh, they're being dug out by by some NPCs. I'll read you a, a bit from my notes here. 
You're buried under a pile of dirt and rubble. The man who has dug you out looks like a grim character. He's squatting in front of you, heaving you out of the pile of detritus by your shoulders. Although he isn't standing, you can tell that he's a towering man. He wears the clothes of someone who hangs out in seedy bars. Uh, His chin juts out. He's covered in stubble. His face is pockmarked and scarred. He squints at you and he goes, you okay? And then he looks over his shoulder and he shouts, we got another one here. And looking around, you see a group of people in the surrounding area. You're all in a large room on a lower floor of a building that was probably an office plaza. It's difficult to tell, though. The high-ceilinged room has been falling apart for quite some time as the forces of entropy and decay take hold. Cracks burst with plant life, grass and moss and vines. They riddle the walls, uh, the walls themselves covered in faded graffiti. The floor, uh, the floor above you seems to have collapsed down on top of everybody, littering the area with rebar and concrete and dust. And then the, the players, you know, clamber out and they look around and there's a small group of other people, other NPCs, uh, there there's a woman uh, in spandex gym clothes who's just totally ripped she's lifting one end of an eye beam off of someone on the ground uh, an asian kid in his 20s who uh, appears to be unconscious there's a bearded older man in his 60s wearing a tattered brown coat and he's pulling another person out of the rubble there's a black woman with like a commanding presence who's moving among the other people helping to sort of organize the rescue effort and she comes over to rosa and makes sure she's okay they discover that the the Asian guy is dead. Um, nobody's introduced themselves yet. Like everybody's just recovering from this trauma. Memories are scrambled. No one knows how they got there. Not even the NPCs either. And then the building starts to collapse. Three rounds until collapse. And this is where I bust out the D20 uh, D20 post-apocalypse rules for exploring unsafe structures. And this is the kind of, like you said, granular approach that I love to take with this one that just made every scene feel that much more heightened. Uh, So I'm going to read a little bit from the D20 uh, post-apocalypse campaign setting here. After the apocalypse, many of the structures of humanity have been blasted, mangled, or burned out or rotted away and rusted due to the weathering of time. This makes entering buildings a dangerous affair. Heroes moving about in an old decrepit building run the risk of having walls topple over, floors cave in, or even the entire structure fall down on them. A character entering a damaged building uh, must make a survival check. Survival is a skill in the D20 system. At the end of the first round, in which he has moved more than 10 feet into the building, If the building is large and the character explores more than a small area, he makes additional check. One check is made for every thousand square feet of the building's total area. And then there's a table here. So first they roll their survival check and uh, there's there's four points uh, of D or basically there are four types of structure condition and then the survival check DC escalates dependent on that. So if the structure only has minor damage, they only have to pass a survival check DC of five. And then it's major damage, DC 10, severe damage, DC 20, and then a fully collapsed building is DC 30. If a character succeeds on the survival check, they can move normally. If they fail, then you roll percentiles on the building mishap table. so I'll just I'll read them I'll read them down here. Uh, it's in increments of about twenty. Uh, so uh, the lowest one floor punch through uh, the character steps and their leg goes straight through the floor. They take one d four points of damage. You can uh, reflex 
check DC 15 for half damage. Uh, extricating oneself from the floor from a floor punch through is a full round action. Uh, debris can fall on top of you, dealing damage. Again, reflex DC 15 for half. Uh, a portion of a wall topples on the character. A there's a minor ceiling collapse. They take some damage. There's a major wall collapse or a major ceiling collapse. The floor can collapse beneath the character and they plummet to the floor below, taking 1d6 points of damage per 10 feet of falling, which can be mitigated by a tumble check. And then after they land, they have to do another reflex save or suffer another mishap roll when they land on the floor below, which could cause like this cascade of awful things. And then, of course, the entire structure can fall apart. The collapse takes 1d4 rounds. Each round, the structure condition becomes one category worse, and every character within the structure has to make a survival check every round during the collapse, facing additional mishaps with failed checks as they try to get out. So even just the rules for moving around a damaged building basically become a full encounter. And that's where I started. The building's coming down. Everybody's got to get out of there. And so I had them, you know, run these checks. I remember that Critter had a piece of wall fall on him. He took some damage right away. And uh, so they're, they're evacuating the surrounding area. They get out. Uh, you know, they get out just in time and then the building comes down and a huge choking cloud of dust envelops them and they have to, uh, they have rules here. A character in an airless environment can hold his or her breath for a number of rounds equal to his or her constitution score. After this period of time, the character must make a con check DC 10 every round to continue holding his or her breath. Um, so, and then the cloud deposits 1d6 inches of dust everywhere. So it, right off the bat, I had this big sort of scary encounter. Everybody scrambling for their lives. Uh, and I didn't want to pull any punches with this one either. I really wanted to make this like this brutal, harsh future. And of course I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't going to set it up so that anybody was going to die right off the bat. I already killed an NPC off screen just to emphasize that, like, death is everywhere in this world. But if they had made, like, a, you know, a series of five uh, critical failures, somebody easily could have died from this. So they scramble out of the wreckage. They get covered in, like, concrete dust. Uh, choking and coughing, everybody starts like counting heads to see, did everybody make it out? And of course, another one of the NPCs got left behind and died right there. Um, and they look around. You find yourselves in an overgrown city, seemingly devoid of life. There are no people in the streets. Everything is rusting and falling apart. Hulking husks of vehicles litter the streets, left long ago to rot under the weight of time. There's glass all over the ground everywhere from the multiple shattered windows. The buildings in this area are looming skyscrapers, several of which have broken in half and are leaning against each other. The sky is overcast. A light wind blows everything, making your eyes dart around at the signs of movement. And uh, then I had here um, the uh, the woman who was the black woman with the commanding presence introduces herself as Sadie. She takes charge and she, she says, we have to find shelter. And we have to scavenge the immediate area. The wind is picking up. It seems like a storm is about to come. So let's find a safe place to stay. The characters in their sort of dazed state, it's like... It, this was, this was great because my players immediately sort of, 
you know, snapped into role playing and they were like, all right, like we just we are in survival mode here. So, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's see if there's anything useful. Let's find a place to get out of out of the like out of the open and we'll take our time to regroup when we have a minute to catch our breath. So they start scavenging around and Critter uh, succeeds on a listen check and he hears the unmistakable sound of music. He investigates and finds an emaciated horse with no saddle on its back walking towards the source of the sound. And he follows the horse at a distance and he sees that it's walking towards a boombox that's playing the song Let's Stay Together by the Reverend Al Green. And he's really confused. And as he's moving towards it, a shrill whistle is heard. The horse bucks and begins to run. Uh, and right before he's about to reach the record or the uh, the boombox, suddenly there's a clap of thunder and a joy buzzer storm is coming for them. And so like a uh, joy, joy buzzer storm. storm what? Yeah. Joy buzzer storm is also it's a weather uh, a weather encounter from the D20 modern setting. Um, it's described as a thunderstorm gone berserk. From a distance, it looks like a conventional thunderstorm, but it flickers with excessive energy and shoots out a board of sparks of ball lightning. Any character can make a spot check to notice a joy buzzer before it passes over. Um, it blasts the area beneath it with lightning at a rate that puts conventional thunderstorms to shame. In addition to pouring rain, there's a 50% chance of a lightning strike every round. The lightning strikes a randomly determined creature in the open, or under light cover, dealing 66 damage, 6d6. If the encounter uh, occurs over a large area, check for a separate lightning strike for each 100 foot by 100 foot area. Creatures inside buildings can't be targeted. Creatures inside vehicles can be targeted, but the lightning strikes the vehicle, dealing damage to the vehicle and half damage to the target within. So Critter like perks up because he's already succeeded his listen check. Uh, that allowed him to hear the source of the music and he notices the storms coming and he calls it to the others. He's like, we really have to find shelter now. And as he says that someone, a sniper somewhere in the buildings around starts opening fire and the boom box was a trap to lure him there. And so he scrambles out of there. The players immediately scatter. There's an encounter where they're trying to find, like they're trying to spot the sniper in the buildings, but they could, they wound up not being able to. And then they start scrambling for cover as the ball lightning starts shooting out of the joy buzzer storm. And like, you know, chunks of asphalt are being blasted along the ground behind them as they clamber into the nearest building. And as soon as they get in there, like they're catching their breath, the storm sets in as the sun goes down. And that night, they all take a moment to sort of regroup, introduce themselves to each other. And that is when they discover that none of them can remember how the hell they got there. And that was the first session. It was a big, intense one with so much dice rolling. <laughs> and yeah, you know, th this this sort of emphasizes what I was saying before, where part of my part of my intent with this was to make it so that like in game i think only maybe 2 hours passed and so it was almost like a 1 to 1 ratio with the amount of time we spent role playing it i really wanted to to make it like yeah like life is a struggle in this world you could die at any time there are threats from all around you other people the weather buildings like nothing is safe 
and uh and yeah that's where it that's where it closed off for adventure one this is very exciting i um i'm just curious like the one question i have is they don't remember anything from they don't remember how they got there or anything do they remember the world being this effed up or is their last nope. memory that the world was just normal the, their last memory was the world was normal and now quite the mystery man how they jump ahead so far maybe they went to the far Indeed. realms yeah they went to the far realms that's an unintended connection but there you go could happen they ri they rip van winkled it man i uh i bet that they were actually at the climax of a previous adventure that involved the apocalypse and actually it was spandex gym lady was the villain and they don't even realize it's going to be like one of those things where at the very end it's like <laughs> and then you realize that it was spandex gym lady from the beginning she was just pretending to be one of you uh, oh actually there is one thing that uh that i do have to mention one thing that did close off the adventure was you know they huddled together in in a building they waited out the storm they they regrouped sort of talked to each other and found out that they, none of them had complete memories and then where it closed off was the storm passed and the cloud cover lifted and they could see the moon with just a huge crack down the center of it for additional uh, ah. post-apocalyptic weirdness. And I, I fan cast this one. So like the gruff guy who was pulling them out of the rubble, I bet you can guess who was playing him. Uh, it's Ron Perlman. Of course, it's Ron oh. Perlman. Bah. <laughs> bah. Sadie is played by Pam Greer. Um, and uh, cool. the 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 lady in the spandex is played by Gina Carano. Oh boy! I I, I like for this one. I wanted to She's sort of villain. fan cast it because it was all because it's all humans. Um, I wanted to fan cast it just so I could throw up some pictures and have it be like actual photos of people to sort of emphasize that realism. And I I also did a yeah. lot of. Uh, I spent a lot of time tracking down like photos of overgrown abandoned buildings and things like that. Plenty of that on the internet. Yeah, exactly. Th thanks to all those, uh, those, uh, what are, what are they called? Urban uh, explorers. Urban explorers. Yeah. Ur thanks to all those folks taking those photos. You know, it's funny on the topic. I don't, maybe I've mentioned this before, but I, do a lot of particularly since I play online, I always have like portraits ready for my NPCs. And uh, the resource that I go back to the most for this these days is uh, Waifu Labs. You familiar with this? No, I'm not. So it's basically like a waifu is like a you know like an anime nerd thing. It's like a yeah an anime girl that you obsess over. But this is a principle, like the, the, the idea is that it's like a, you know, a neural network generator that generates unique uh, anime female characters. And they have been oh, working for cool. some time. 
they've been working for some time on the Hasbando generator. And once that thing's done, like I officially have limitless character portraits that don't need copyright or anything. Uh, it reminds really me of uh, this person does not exist. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah. Yep, or this or cat does not exist. It's just a neural network that just makes photos of people out of existing photos of people. Have you seen this cat does not exist? Yeah. It's the same yep. thing, but with cats. I have but a picture cats. of a cat from this cat <laughs> does not exist, but it's got like six legs. It's a scary looking cat. Um, <laughs> That's really cool. Usually what I do is rather than use photos of uh, of people is I tend to use um just rpg art like yeah. i'll go through the source book for you know the d20 uh post-apocalypse cam campaign setting and screen cap a lot of the the characters in the artwork but for this one i wanted some real people i'm also fond of taking uh screen caps of art from uh like historical uh there there's osprey books makes a series of books that are basically they're seem to be largely intended for like a historical people who make historical models and dioramas, but they are basically sort of like paperback history books, which include like uh color panels that indicate like what certain uniforms will look like and what basically different, uh, different people in these militaries and different historical contexts would look like. And that's another place where I get a lot of generic, uh, human npc art with uh various sort of styles neat that's a good resource is it tavern time is it tavern time tavern time <laughs> it it's is. tavern time it sounds like it's tavern time you've got a pretty big one set up for us i uh i would like to get mine out of the way before we get into this fascinating topic go for it so I have just simply brought, uh, uh, it's actually, so I've talked before about the Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition Adventures League. They do basically with every major release, like starting with Horde of the Dragon Queen and including others like, uh, Princes of the Apocalypse, Out of the Abyss, Curse of Strahd, and more in that order. Um, they run a season and each season has a set of, tailor-made adventures that are the episodes of that season and they're designed to be run with like regular groups that meet every wednesday in sort of like an official an official dnd 5e campaign capacity and so there's certain rules for like bringing characters over and magic items and whatnot um but what i really like these for is that they're just like a consistent uh large collection of interlinked uh adventures that make for a cool campaign together and so i'm often harvesting these adventures for my own use in my campaigns and one that i recently used for one of my for the campaign that i'm running was the 13th episode of adventures league season three which was for the uh out of the abyss uh adventure module and it is titled writhing in the dark um <laughs> basically to give you sounds cthulian yeah so just like as some setup the general thing for the uh season in general so out of the abyss is that it's a big um underdark adventure where the demon lords have been uh 
summoned to the Underdark and they're wreaking chaos everywhere and it's pretty insane. But only some of the demon lords appear in that uh in that module in, in that campaign and one of the big ones that's missing is uh Gratst who is the uh second highest ranked I think beneath Demogorgon. And so uh the season of Adventure League specifically focused on Gratst and how he was up to no good. He was basically waging a war on uh, the surface settlement of Hillsfar in the Forgotten Realms and, like, uh, using his corrupting influence to uh, affect politics and whatnot. But then also he's, like, invading drow cities and stuff in the Underdark. And basically the large picture, the the big picture thing is we need to get a big alliance together to fight uh, Gratzt and his those under his influence. And um, so one of the things that's like a motif in the season is that Gratz's thing is that he has uh, an extra finger on each hand. And so there's like his symbol of a six-fingered hand and like this recurring thing of, of the number six. And so this uh, episode, Writhing in the Dark, is about how the uh, various factions that are attempting to oppose Gratz and his evil plot in the area, um, they send the players to make contact with a group of illithids who have basically uh, asked to parlay um, in the interest of uh, working together against Gratz. And so the players go and they meet a mind flayer who explains to them that there is a mind flayer that he's referring to as a rogue thought that needs to be destroyed. So it's basically an assassination job. You have to hunt down. Um, He's pretty cagey with details, but the players can get more out of him. Basically, this is an illithid that is a warlock sworn to Gratz and as a result is like a mutant who doesn't... uh, like he's broken off from the main illithid uh, colony, basically, and like just worships this crazy demon and is like insane and corrupted and whatnot. And so, in keeping with the sort of motif of the season, this illithid has six tentacles instead of four, um, and he's called the Rogue Thought, and it's pretty cool. Uh, what I really like about this adventure is that basically you go, you're sent to face this illithid in his uh evil vault lair and the vault is like divided into imagine like a diamond and then at each point of the diamond there is like a vaguely circular chamber and each of these chambers is like connected by a sort of diagonal hallway so you have this vault that consists of these four chambers, and then in the middle, there is this main chamber that's diamond-shaped, but in order to open the diamond-shaped chamber, you have to open secret doors in each, or, or like, you have to open the secret doors in each of the chambers that connect at the points. And it's a lot of fun because as the dungeon master, you know that actually the mostly circular chambers at each point on the diamond are not shaped like circles. They are shaped like skulls. And each one has a weirdly shaped basin in it, which is shaped to fit a specific type of brain. 
And throughout the chamber, there are different encounters and puzzles you have to complete in order to access different types of brains that are the keys to these brain basins, which once you fill each of them, once you've filled all of them, the doors into the main chamber unlock and you realize that each of the four chambers is shaped like a skull with the brain basin right at the top of the skull where the brain would be. And by uh, putting in a brain at each of these points, you open the Illithid's main lair. Um, That's awesome. And that's perfect flavor is what that is it also has like of course an illithid would have that kind of thing it's also like one of the chambers i really love has um you were asking me before about puzzles and this was a puzzle that i ran and unfortunately i misread something and it kind of malfunctioned on me but otherwise i think it's pretty good basically there is a um one of the chambers effectively has a puzzle which is like a nine card game of memory three of the cards three but three of the cards um are actually these demonic runes which if you turn them over they like mess up the game and do psychic damage so basically what you're trying to do is play a game of memory but you're also trying to remember where the bad cards are that hurt you um and you're trying to turn over all the cards except for that one those ones and when you do this puzzle it uh, opens what is basically like an illithid cooler that's full of brains. Um, and it also contains three potions that all look like greater healing potions, but two of them are actually potions of poison. So you can break into an oh illithid's <laughs> brain fridge, but if you steal from the illithid's brain fridge, you'll end up hurting yourself the next time you try to heal with a greater heal potion. Um, and I got to use that on my players, which was a lot of fun, because uh, they were in a really tough fight, actually. And then one of them went to drink the greater healing potion. And I was like, bad news. It doesn't heal you. It actually hurts you. Um, oh, no. And it, I kind of love this because it's sort it's sort of like you're breaking into a, a mind flayers man cave. Yeah, absolutely. That was totally it was like the the moral of the story being don't steal potions from an illithid's cooler full of brains is like, uh, it, it just really jumps off the page. And, um, I will say though, one of the things about the module that like I was kind of mixed on is basically, um, it features a bunch of gift Yankee as enemies and the Githyanki seem to be working in service to the Illithid, which narratively or like lore-wise doesn't really fit. Githyanki are supposed to like hate Illithids and like hunt them to the ends of the earth. It may be that this Illithid is supposed to have like corrupted their minds or something, but I just didn't feel that that really came across in the writing very much or wasn't explicitly stated. Um, so I actually ran it differently where I had the characters investigating this place and running into Gith Yankee who were simultaneously trying to hunt the Illithid, but also fighting them on basically like just principle. Um, and so it ended up being like, a thing where they were fighting sort of two enemies at once. They were fighting the Illithid and his like brain thralls in the area. And then they were also fighting this Githyanki who had come to the place to hunt down the Illithid. 
But uh, yeah, Writhing in the Dark um, comes with uh, a great idea for a rod of the a plus two rod of the Pact Keeper for any warlocks in the party. Um, and uh, again, it's just got good puzzles, fun chambers, and a great map. I love that. That sounds super great. And I love the the brain puzzle. <laughs> That's the kind of thing where like, you know how you can buy those sort of Halloween candies that are like gummy brains? Yeah. It would be great to run that adventure like around Halloween sometime and get a big bowl of like gummy brains. It is. And you could even get a cooler and you could put in like different different, you know, drinks and then depending on which ones the players picks, like, oh, that one was a poison, though. It is a perfect uh, Halloween session. Like, I should also, like, the, I had a lot of great experiences with this. Like, I had, um, so one of the rooms is, like, full of, like, corpses and gore, basically. And what the, the, the actual, what's happening is that it's, like, it's a room that's full of, like, slime and gore and corpses and fungus. And um, while the room with the cooler is actually the whole room is cold and it's basically the Illithid's freezer, uh, the like mushy room is the pickling room where he puts corpses and it just breaks them down to their bones and brains. And uh, in that room, there is a, like a, a Dwerger thrall that um is in the control of the illithid and that waits in the corpses and then tries to surprise attack the players and then also these intellect devourers come out and it's like head crabs and a zombie fighting you but then uh i even we had two great things happen with when i ran this first of all one of the players was a lizard man and one of the basins each basin takes a different type of brain and one of them specifically took a lizard brain which was a cool moment of like wait this is your kind of brain. But then also, um, the other thing that we had happen was after they killed the intellect devourers and the thrall, uh, the players were specifically like that. Something seemed up with that Dwerger. I don't think it was like fighting of its own free will. And, uh, so the the fighter was like, all right, I'm going to like check to see if there's anything like if there are any incisions in the head or something. And then as soon as they go to look at the head, I have it just like spring at them like the head, the face hugger from Alien. Yes. Um, and he just has like this like, oh, my God, moment where he like shoots it. Um, it was so good. It was uh, it was it was a really like perfect, basically a Halloween module session. It was great. That's fantastic. It has aliens, it has skulls, it has Cthuloids, it has brains. Um, it's great. It's great. Uh, and it has land, opportunities for additional like interactive components. You could make your players choose the drink that they drink. I like that. True. So All right. Are you ready for this? Oh boy. Get settled in. Last episode, uh I we were I was talking about rifts again because I like to laugh at rifts. I find it to be an endless. I do want to say, actually, your whole thing about like, but this time I'm going to make every role like a major survival challenge and stuff. I'm like, I don't know. It sounds like rifts tried to do that by making uh, math and communication regular skills in the game. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, okay. 
it's not that I want to make like every roll into a survival challenge. It, I knew it, it I knew what you meant. I, That's why I didn't make that snarky remark. But I mean, <laughs> while we're poking fun at riffs, technically riffs did exactly what you're saying you want to do. So it's very true. So I make fun of rifts a lot because I think it's this endless resource of just hilarious bad ideas <laughs> like there are lots of great ideas in rifts but there are a lot of bad ideas see our previous episodes you know just look at that that picture of the tattooed man for a great example but uh i thought maybe now it's time to actually pay some tribute to palladium books because for all that i make fun of their stuff like this is the rifts is the rpg that got me into role playing games. I played rifts before I played D&D. It was rifts that like really captured my imagination in the early 90s as a a tween boy uh which is like the perfect age bracket for rifts to really blow your mind. And so I do owe basically my entire RPG career to Palladium Books in that way. So credit where it's due again. And uh, you suggested that the history of Palladium Books could be its own tavern pick. So here we are. I'm going to give you the, the brief history of Palladium Books. Um, and to start off, how do, you, how do you pronounce his name? The president and lead game designer of Palladium Books. How do you pronounce it, Tom? It's Kevin... Simbada? Is it Simbada? Simbeta. Uh, I got it totally wrong when I was a kid and read it as Simbidia. I moved one of the I's to yeah. between the D and the A, Simbidia, and then like that just stuck in my head forever, even though I knew it was wrong. It is Sembida. Seven Sembida. 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 Okay. So uh this was this was a real eye-opener for me because as I said, you know, I was introduced uh, to Palladium Books through Rifts, and then I learned about their other games like Heroes Unlimited, the Palladium role-playing game, which is their fantasy thing. Uh, Mechanoid I Invasion! The... I'm doing metal Mechanoid horns invasion, with my fingers uh, right now. Uh, Robotech. I never did play Mechanoid Invasion or uh, Robotech or Ninja Turtles is another one that they mm, had. After the bomb? Um, yeah, after the bomb. But what I didn't realize is uh, just about all those ones that I listed came first. Rifts was one of their later ones. Rifts, uh, Rifts started in the 90s, but before that, there was their first. the first game they did was the Mechanoid Invasion, then Palladium role-playing game, then Heroes Unlimited. I thought for sure Heroes Unlimited came after Rifts, and then Ninja Turtles, and then Robotech, and then Rifts. So Rifts was was pretty late in their, I, I mean late. It was later in their publishing history it is than very, all those other games. It is very interesting to me that Palladium Fantasy Role Playing Game came out so early because that seemed to be something that was already established in their whole multiverse. But I guess that was an advent of Rifts too, eh? Yeah, exactly. Well, so the the multiverse. Um, Building off of what I just said, uh, part of the intent of Palladium Books was to use um, universal game mechanics across multiple genres. And for this reason, they call their house RPG system the Megaverse. It's megaversal. It's not universal. It's more than just like one 
one continuity. It is all of these. So the the megaverse of rifts is not only like the multiple realities of the RPG rifts, but it is it is applied to all of their games. Their system is megaversal, according to them. Um, as a side note, I thought this was interesting too. Uh, Palladium Books claims that it was the first RPG publisher to adopt the practice of what's called perfect binding in its books, which is uh, paperback books that use a glue binding to glue the pages in. Um, and because of that, it, they're cheaper to produce and they can provide full source books at a lower cost. And that's something that always stuck out to me as well is like, why don't you see other RPG series just all using paperback to keep the cost down. Usually it's hardcover. And that's a, that is a distinctly Palladium thing, though apparently it has been adopted by other RPG publishers. It is funny because a lot of the times you see paperback, you see modules in paperback, but then core books in hardcover. And then yeah. even the modules in paperback, though, will often be just like stapled, things like that. And yeah, it's, it's true. funny because... I would say generally my experience with the Rifts books is that they're generally pretty durable. Like I don't have any broken Rifts books, even though they're paperbacks, um, which it's is true. more than they, they which is more really than I can covers too. Which is more than I can say for a certain Dungeons and Dragons hardcovers, which I have, which are just falling apart. Um, but also, I think that it's worth saying that like they have really nailed having that sort of market aesthetic of like you see the section where they sell the riffs books and they all have that shiny paperback look to them and they all like match basically it's like what you yeah, want with like a glossy good, cover it's what you want with like a good blu-ray collection or something is like nothing that seems totally out of place with the others and that each like seem interesting absolutely true i have such vivid memories of like saving up my dollars to go buy those rifts books when they were coming out and and, and then see, you had and to like, pick one I'd, out of 92 exactly and but then you, you bring it home and then you have like your shelf or your stack and they all are like the same size and they all look so nice and like congruous together um so that's sort of like the background and, i did you know, i did rifts also want to ask um does it say when they introduced the concept of the megaverse, like the megaversal system? They don't say when it was introduced, but it seems like it was something that they had intended from the beginning. Like Palladium role-playing game came out in 1983, Heroes Unlimited in 1984, and both of those I know for a fact use that megaversal system. It's just so, so funny. So I think it was sort of like a foundational principle of theirs. It's it's so funny to imagine like comparing this to how it must have looked early on. Like what I just said about having that having nailed that market aesthetic first of all is like back then they wouldn't have had that. It would have been like, what the hell are these things over here? These these books look different. And then the other thing is like, at this point, it's not like they're selling like the Marvel universe, you know, like, like the megaverse now is like everything. But I, if I imagine them selling the megaverse as just Palladium Fantasy RPG and Mechanoids Invasion, that's weird, man. That is a weird universe <laughs> to sell to people. Exactly. Like imagine... 
being, you know, imagine being into Palladium RPGs in like 1985 and you're like, wow, these all use the same system. So I have my choice between like D&D style fantasy, the Mechanoid Invasion, and then Heroes Unlimited, which is superheroes. Yeah, I could either be like very dire sci-fi, uh, like really derivative fantasy or I could be just comic book superheroes, and they're all—they comic could all be in the same or thing. Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and um, man, that's that's so that's so wild. Like, what kind? It's it's like how I don't know if you know, but um, you know the Saints Row video games. Yes, they are made by Volition, who also made the Red Faction games, and okay those games are technically set in the same universe. They have all sorts of <laughs> indications that actually the corporations that become the bad guys in Red Faction start out as the mega corporations in the world of Saints Row. And like, it's, sure. to me, it's like like having the megaverse be at some point just Palladium Fantasy and Mechanoid Invasion is like, where is the connection point between these two things? <laughs> the connection point is Palladium Books. It's Kevin so I'm Sembita. Sembita. Um, I'm not going to dwell on like every single point of history in Palladium Books, but I'll touch on some, some more things. Um, we've already mentioned a few of the game lines. Let me give you just like a, a rundown, the full list of all the different game lines that Palladium Books has put out. And then also keep in mind that Rifter Magazine is published for all of these lines. Correct. So there's After the Bomb and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles associated with it. There's Beyond the Supernatural, which is sort of the, the their derivation of Call of Cthulhu. Rift's Chaos Earth, which is a prequel to Rift's. I have that one. D Dead Rain, uh, where it's post-apocalypse with zombies. Heroes Unlimited, which is superheroes. Uh, Macross 2, which is based on the Macross anime. Mm -hmm. uh, Mechanoid Invasion. Night Spawn slash Night Bane. We've covered that one. Basically, World um, of Darkness. It's funny that yeah. I wouldn't have necessarily, like, just looking at it, I might have thought that Beyond the Supernatural was World of Darkness, but it is a very good call that actually, no, that's the call of Cthulhu. They got into World of Darkness later. Yeah. Um, Palladium RPG. Uh, there's one called Revised Recon, which is originally a Vietnam War-based RPG, but later updated for modern-era combat involving mercenaries in fictional hotspots. Yeah, I, um, I know about that one. Uh, Ninjas and Super Spies which blows my mind that it's its own thing because my friends just treated the Ninjas and Super Spies source book like a ninja source book for Rifts. Like, if you want to make a ninja, you just use the Ninjas and Super Spies source book. It, I didn't realize it was its own game. It's funny. I actually have a bunch of, in my collection of old Dragon magazines, I have a t whole bunch of content for Ninjas and Super Spies that I really like. Uh, Robotech. Rifts, of course. Uh, Splicers, a post-apocalyptic RPG where humans have turned to organic technology to fight a robot threat. Yeah, it's uh, weird. It's like Terminator, basically, but it's like, man, it's so wild. Like the 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 evil AI is also like like inherently insane or something. Like, man, it's it's a weird 
because it's not mechanoid invasion, but it's similar. But then like the humans have like basically like Evangelion, like biomechs and like you get, oh you get like guns that like merge with your hands, like something out of existence or something. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's that's, it's pretty that's, cool. That that's really original compared to things like their all their derivations. Um, Systems failure is a post-apocalyptic game set after the Y two K bug collapsed all of te- telecommunications. I feel like if that one has an analog, it's uh, paranoia. Oh yeah. And then Valley of the Pharaohs, which is a historical RPG set in ancient Egypt. I'd never even heard of that one. I didn't even know about that one, no. That's crazy. And then, uh, on top of that, there was a line of supplements that were not their own game uh, called Weapons. So there's a book, one of their source books is just called Weapons, and it's a compendium of virtually every edged or impact melee weapon used in any medieval or primitive culture, Swords, knives, hafted weapons, spears, pole arms, etc. I have the second edition Palladium Book of Weapons and Armor. The Palladium Book of Weapons and Armor is the next one that I was going to mention. And I have uh, the Compendium of Contemporary Weapons, which is all like guns and rocket launchers oh, and grenades and stuff. I love gun. So those are dragons, all their... but gun. Yeah. <laughs> those are all their their game lines. And now I'm just going to talk a little bit. There's feel free to go to the Palladium Books Wikipedia page. I'm not going to go through absolutely everything, but I'll talk a little bit about uh, their licenses, their financial difficulties, and uh, just like a, a few a few things that really uh, were like stumbling blocks. Mm-hmm. I feel like Palladium Palladium Books, like their peak was in the 90s. And after the 2000s, it's been a really rocky road for them. But man, I've been so, you know, you you try to be there for them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So, uh, as I said, like things were going great for them in the 90s. Rifts was huge. It's still probably their biggest RPG that they've ever put out. And then, in October of 2000. Uh, Rifts was licensed to Precedence Entertainment for a collectible card game. Uh, and then Precedence Entertainment, these guys had made collectible collectible card games based on other properties such as the Tomb Raider card game, Babylon 5, the Wheel of Time, uh, and the Terminator collectible card game. Uh, but they went defunct in 2002. I mean, and the Rifts collectible card game. I just want to say that like, you know the type of collectible card game company, the one that made none of the ones that you've heard of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so they they went out of it. Rifts was licensed in 2000. They went out of business in 2002. The Rift CCG just didn't really happen. Um, and then in 2004, Rifts was licensed for a video game called Rifts: Promise of Power. But oh, boy, did weird. they what, back what the wrong horse. What platform was it in, on? I never heard about that. <laughs> <laughs> they backed the wrong horse it was on the nokia n-gauge which is a handheld gaming device and uh that nokia miserably yeah it failed terribly nokia you know from mobile phones well the n-gauge 
It looks like a Sega Game Gear combined with a cell phone. It's got a D-pad on the left and then a numbered keypad on the right. It was part smartphone and part handheld game system. Uh, it it failed miserably. <laughs> but Rifts was like, yeah, they can put out our game. So the reason you've never heard of the Rifts video game is because you've also never heard of the thing it was supposed to play on. The Nokia N-Gage, my god. And then, like, the early 2000s were not kind to Rifts. In 2000, there was the card game problem. In 2004, there was the video game problem. In 2003, Jerry Bruckheimer Films and Walt Disney Pictures optioned the rights to make a movie based on Rifts. Bruckheimer was said to be developing the movie in conjunction with the screenwriter David Franzoni. In 2006, a press release asserted that until Jerry Bruckheimer has a script that he loves, the movie can't get the green light. In 2011, Kevin, uh, Kevin Sembita said that the film option would be renewed for a ninth year in, the, in a row, and then the movie just never happened. Man. What if, imagine we had a Rifts movie, though. My God. I just, I really want to know what the idea was going to be. The mind like, reels. Rifts is so yeah, the rifts is so huge. Where do you even start? Do you just do like the Mandalorian and just like a mercenary in the world of rifts? You know or what I honestly feel like, like with, with the with coalition this? or the the phase world? Where do you go? Here's my take: the rifts movie exists. It's called heavy metal. <laughs> yeah, heavy metal is yeah. so rifts, like or rifts is so heavy metal, whichever, like. If you wanted a movie that has like a sort of uh, scummy taxi driver that gets embroiled in some noir stuff, but then there's also a green orb that melts people, but then there's also skeletons that uh, take over a, a, a B-52 bomber, but then there's also like a cool lady that rides a pterodactyl and kills orcs and stuff. Yeah, that was the Rifts movie. Drugged up alien truckers, yeah. a kid who becomes Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, so after all that, Rifts had some like, major boobage. It really does. <laughs> my God. Yeah. I, I. That was another thing that blew my mind when I was like a thirteen-year-old boy. <laughs> was all the boobage, just being like, "Whoa!" Major boobage. Um, so, like after all that, just when you think you know Palladium Books is at its lowest, well, in two thousand six. Uh, Sambita issued a statement revealing that Palladium Books was in critical financial difficulties due to alleged embezzlement and theft, resulting in losses somewhere between $850,000 and $1.3 million. And then on top of that, because of all the problems with their licensing deals falling through, they were just running out of money. Um, I should note, too, like I talked about the N-Gage game, the Jerry Bruckheimer movie. There was an MMO that was licensed from them. You know, I, frankly, I think if any of these things would have worked for Rifts, an MMO probably would have worked. Um, but uh, so they raised money to continue operations by selling signed and numbered art prints by Kevin Simbita as well as by urging fans to buy directly from their online store if their financial situations would allow it. They're just like begging fans to help I, support them. I remember because I remember I used to get 
I don't know if it was emails or just when I would check in on the site, but they were always saying like, please consider buying a t-shirt or something. They do actually, or they have done in the past really uh, fascinating like Christmas bundles that are just like a huge like grab bag of Palladium products. Um, But all of these have a sort of like desperate air to them, which like also going back to like talking about the amount embezzled, like, uh what was it 85,000 to 1.3 million or something yeah like the the thing that's crazy about that is like for them that is crippling for like wizards of the coast they could dust themselves off and keep going like yeah they'd be able to to push on it's uh yeah it's wild i mean it was a significant amount of money regardless anyway in 2006 uh, it was revealed that Steve Shearing, Palladium's former sa- former sales manager, had been sentenced to a misdemeanor conviction, one year of probation, and ordered to pay $47,080 in restitution to Palladium Books in connection with the thefts. Uh, it also pro- An article also provided more information on the thefts, which took place from 2002 to 2004 and were only discovered when Palladium started taking inventory. So they they found the guy, but the damage had been done. And uh, this is when things really start to fall apart for Palladium. I mean, they're still kicking, but um, it was after this that uh, licenses started lapsing. They lost the Robotech license and like through the mid 2000s, they just started losing all of their major licenses. I don't know if they I don't think they even have Ninja Turtles anymore. Like it just they started losing their licensed uh, properties. And then in 2013, uh, or sorry, in, uh, in, where is it? Yeah, it is 2013. They ran a Kickstarter uh, for Robotech RPG Tactics. They managed to get the license for Robotech back temporarily, and they kickstarted a new RPG Tactics game. However, the release date of it kept being pushed back and back. First, it was to be released in the like the first half of 2014, then the second half of 2014, and just kept being pushed back more and more. And they finally started to get the products printed, but they're so hard up that they made this... I think this is a bad PR decision. Uh, on July 14th, 2014, Palladium Books issued a plea to backers seeking permission to sell the copies of the Robotech RPG tactics to attendees of Gen Con 2014, a divergence from an earlier promise to make the copies unavailable to the public until the backer rewards were fulfilled. So they wanted to basically sell the thing that their backers paid for to other people and not give it to the backers. It's brutal because it really sounds like, like since 2000, Palladium has just been hit with every bad marketing trend that has like transpired since then like kickstarter snafus you hear about it all the time there was like just a period and it's like well of course they get got in on that nonsense because yep. they were in a desperate position at a time where like you know early 2000s was a bad time for even like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff, because suddenly everybody was downloading PDFs and stuff. Like it was way harder to get your audience than it was in the nineties, I think. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's brutal how like, yeah, just a series of unfortunate events. 
really is. And this, like, this was still going on even recently. Uh, on February 27th, 2018, uh, Symbita announced they were unable to fulfill the Wave 2 rewards because they had lost the Robotech license. Like, their Kickstarter thing Ugh. went for so long that they lost the license to it in the middle of it. So, like, now bad. I feel bad. I want to go buy the Rifter and see what they're still able to put out. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. But, like, talk about, like, egg on their face, too. Um, so here's here was the, sta the statement made uh, by Kevin Simbita. It is with sadness and tremendous heartbreak that, that I announced that despite our best efforts, we're unable to produce the Robotech RPG Tactics Wave 2 rewards. Moreover, after proudly carrying the legacy of Robotech in the role-playing games medium for 30 years, our license has expired and is not being renewed. As part of our license agreement, Palladium has a short window to liquidate our stock of Robotech RPG Tactics products, Robotech Shadow Chronicles role-playing game books, and the PDFs of the original Robotech RPG series that are currently available. And then their license ended on March 31st, 2018. Because nothing Damn, sells dude. quite like an RPG that's not in production anymore. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, so, man, that's rough. And that's like, that's clearly that is like the darkest period of Palladium Books history. Um, and then I'll end on this because this is sort of like a footnote in the Wikipedia article. Uh, and something that I really found interesting. I didn't know this. Palladium is aggressive in preventing wide distribution of fan-made conversions of their games to other systems, such as the D20 system. They strongly discourage converting the intellectual property of others into their system. While they cannot prevent it, doing so is not allowed in venues owned by Palladium Books. Palladium routinely threatens legal action against fans who distribute conversions in other venues by issuance of cease and desist orders. So I find that really interesting because certainly when I started playing D&D, &D, I was always curious too. It's like, can I convert stuff from my Rifts books to D&D? &D? And there was never a clear cut way to do it because they are actively fighting against it. Well, and, and there's a reason why. Well, and it's weird. Too. Sorry, what uh, were you about to say what the reason was? Well, I, I can, but I... I talked over you what were you saying well they had i remember they had something that was like the rifts conversion book or something like they had conversion book one yeah yeah they had specifically released their own conversion books that were licensed but this is another thing is that i remember when i first got into rifts you used to be able to find all these old like html like GeoCities sites that were just full of like hey here's my occupational character class for the predator or here's mm -hmm. my racial character class for the predator or here's literally every dc hero remade for the megaverse or whatever but you can't find any of those anymore because they've been individually contacted and told to cease and desist yeah and uh you may recall a, a little while ago i was talking about going through like my childhood rpg binder that i'd found when i was packing to move and a big chunk of that is t exactly those like the the just you know the basic text html pages character classes if you want to make like a guyver or things like that um 
The reason why, when asked why Palladium was so much stricter in regard to conversions than other game companies, Symbetus stated that the policy had been adopted due to advice from Palladium's lawyers to shield Palladium from liability for conversions of other parties' IPs. I, I, I can't speak to, to whether or not that advice holds water, but it certainly makes sense, I guess. They just don't want to be liable for somebody like porting D&D into Rifts and then trying to pass it off as you know, sanctioned by Palladium, I guess. I guess. Um, man, I'm just wondering what the future holds for Palladium now, because, yeah, it really makes me want to go pick up an issue of the Rifter. I, I am definitely going to be, like, looking into this more, going to palladiumbooks.com and exploring. Um, I guess Rifts is still putting out content. Uh, the Wikipedia page says that the expansive Rift series is ongoing 1990 to the present. So I guess there's still content being put out for that. And I mean, I guess that's also one that they own top to bottom. It's not a licensed property. They created it. But uh, there you go. That's the history of Palladium oh, Books in a no. nutshell. Important oh, no, notice. What? As of 2019, the Rifter is being put on an indefinite hiatus. Issue 84 will be the last Rifter for now. Oh my god. That's so heartbreaking. That's terrible. God damn. It's just it's it's all falling apart. I, I really feel for them, you know? We make fun of we make fun of Palladium books, but damn it, dude. Like they really were the foundation of my love of RPGs, and it's really sad to hear that they've fallen on such hard times. Yeah, I'm I'm now like even more proud that I own a copy of the Mechanoid Invasion trilogy. Seriously. Uh, also, by the way, I just went to PalladiumBooks.com and the uh, the header animation, they have an animated banner and it's a 3D rendering of a glitter boy I drawing his railgun and firing. It's kind of badass. I kind of like it. It does look like they still have, they've got products and they're coming soon. We've got Rift's Beast, Bestiary Volume 2. We got creature feature for beyond the supernatural we got rifts coalition manhunters uh rifts they're gonna make a new chaos earth book psychic scream rifts titan robotics source book rifts world book and arctica they are relentless man they they are they are the little engine that could i will say okay in in the uh coming soon they have the Rift's Chaos Earth Nema Mission Book 1 pre-order, that has been, like, that's listed in the, like, coming soon in the back of the Chaos Earth book that I got, like, over a decade ago. Um, So, I don't know. The thing is, some of these have art, so that's exciting. But the fact that there's a book here that I have literally waited more than 10 years to come out, maybe, maybe it's not, uh, I don't know. This is I guess we gotta dope. throw money they, at it. They have they have one of their big classic paperback source books, but it's the best of Rifter. That'd probably be worth looking into. Yeah. yeah. So th- so there we are. The the sordid history of Palladium books. The highest of highs, the lowest of lows. Man, it's brutal. This came out. Well, time, time to go reread my Rifts books. Yeah, I'm just getting all distracted now by Rifts stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, so they made a, they released a new Rifts Chaos Earth book in 2015. 
that's something. Well, Man, I love I love that they have a questions and resources uh, subsection on their website. And what is a role playing game is a question, but it's like five questions under what is rifts. Oh, boy. <laughs> I kind of feel like what is a role playing game comes before what is rifts. Yeah, they're still putting out stuff on drive through RPG. So, you know, that fills me with hope. But it's sad to see that last rifter there. Ugh. Yeah, seriously. They, the, we gotta do whatever it takes to hard times. We gotta do whatever it takes to bring back the rifter. I mean, I guess I guess the only thing I can do is keep on talking about rifts in the tavern. You know what I gotta do is no, what we gotta do is start a rifts game. Dude. We won't use <laughs> we'll use five E rules. Don't tell anybody, but we'll, No, they'll take us down, we'll Tom. The, we can't. No, we'll use the books and we'll keep buying the books and that'll that'll then they get our money. All right. <laughs> we'll we'll corner them. They'll have to tolerate our <laughs> bullshit because we keep funding them. All right. This has been a fun and informative episode of Crate and Crowbar. Or, or no, it's not Crate and Crowbar. <laughs> it's comparing campaign. Yeah, I wish. I wish we were the other CNC. Anyway, but an enjoyable podcast nonetheless. I hope I didn't do that earlier. Um so if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to see supplemental material related, basically our show notes, you can check it out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us on Facebook. Facebook, uh, we're just comparing campaign on Facebook, me and McGill. And then if you get in, want to get in touch with me personally, I have a Twitter account called Narnog at N-A-R underscore N-O-G. And pretty much all I do with it now is tweet at the podcast, The Besties. So, you know, plugs for other podcasts and then my podcast. What are you going to do? Uh, go out there and buy Rifter is what you got to do. Make sure they know you, you got to have it. You know, what I need to know is I need to know that there is an heir to the Rifts empire. I need to know that after Simbita is out of it, somebody can take up that torch and reinitiate the Rifter. It'll be that uh, CJ Corella guy. Oh, uh, or we wait, is that the bad embezzlement guy? No, it's not. No, no. Uh, I I actually this will be a conversation for another time. I don't know the full uh, the full story of C.J. Carella, but he is the other most credited name on most Rift books. I see. Uh, you know, I think he's probably just an artist, though. <laughs> or maybe you know, because um, somebody was doing this. Um, oh yeah, the Jelly Belly guy. Uh, maybe they'll do one of these Willy Wonka style contests, and then maybe one of us could win control of the Rifts Empire. Oh my God! Well, like thirteen-year-old me would would send never send us the winning ticket, Simbita. Not me. Level up your characters, folks. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.